settling for a career is, is a very, uh, it's not something I would ever advise anyone to do. No matter how desperate you may be, always make sure that you, you're in an environment where you feel happy and you feel like there's a room, there's room for growth for you. Welcome to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom, a podcast where we provide insights, tips, and inspiration for college students and young professionals so they can make a really successful transition from college life to the professional world and beyond. My name is Andy Malinsky, and I'm your host. I'm also a professor of organizational behavior and international management at Brandeis University's International Business School, where we record and produce this podcast. So our guest today is Tayo Roxon, who is a writer, speaker, consultant, and media personality who runs... UYD Management, a strategic leadership and consulting firm that helps organizations incorporate sustainable diversity and inclusion practices. As someone who's lived on four continents, uh, he is an authority in communicating effectively across cultures. In addition to that, Tayo has been named a top 40 millennial influencer. Um, He also hosts the popular As by Nomads podcast. I've been a guest. <laughs> and his book, uh, Use Your Difference to Make a Difference, um, which is about how to connect and communicate in a cross-cultural world, is uh, scheduled to come out on September 4th, 2019. Atayo is a man of many talents. And I'm very happy to have you here with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, for having me on the show. I'm so used to saying coming on the show because I've had you on the show. Uh, multiple times. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you've appeared the most, by the way. Just <laughs> have I? I have that. Oh, that's good. I, I'm glad. I, I've, I've I've enjoyed each time. So, yeah. so, 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 tell us, tell us about what you do. I mean, so we now know you have a podcast. You have a company. Tell us a bit about, like, for someone who's just not really familiar with this, this, um, this area. What, what do you do? So, what I do today is I work with institutions of, of all sorts to essentially help them connect effectively across culture. So, I help them uh, create systems that make sure everyone in the, in the company feels like they belong and their uh, policies are inclusive. Then I also help them attract people from diverse backgrounds to make sure that uh, the talent and the leadership reflects the world that we live in. But that basically boils down to being a diversity and inclusion consultant. You know, it's no secret that we live in a very, very multicultural world, but a lot of institutions, when it comes to education with curriculums or um, companies with uh, making sure that you create more room for or more seats on the table. Uh, it's no secret that those things have been challenges, in, <laughs> especially in, in several industries. So I just try to improve the visibility and also make sure that we humanize each other. But yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so I was going to say, so what would be an example, just to you know, make it super concrete for, I imagine there are people who don't, quite know what a diversity and inclusion consultant does. So what would be an example of something, I don't know, a way you've worked with a company before, just to give us a concrete example? Sure. So companies bring me for a whole host of reasons. They might say, hey, we've noticed that we have problems attracting uh, you know, uh, you know, people of color in, in our offices. What can we do to make sure we improve that? How can we uh, improve our pipeline, essentially? How can we make sure that we're more visible in, uh, to black and brown people. And so 
I, you know, I will come in there. I will assess their needs. I'll see what they have in there. I'll see what they're doing in terms of marketing, resumes. I'll also work with the, their HR team to make sure that when you get people of color in or, or women or people in marginalized groups, that you're doing things to make sure that they, they feel like they belong. Because a lot of the times people will bring me on and say, hey, we have, you know, we hire a lot of people, but they tend to leave after the first year. So that's one. Another example could be a multinational bringing me on to say, you know, our Chinese office doesn't work well with our, you know, Italian office, or it doesn't work well with our U.S. office. How can we make sure that we keep that to your, to use your term, cultural dexterity? Uh, how do we make sure we use that uh, cultural dexterity and make sure that everybody preserves their identity, cultural identity, but also we have a, a working environment? And then obviously, I do a lot of workshops and. Uh, executive coaching as well. Got it. Okay. Well, that, that that's really helpful. So so let's rewind uh, to how you got into this. And you know, with most people, I ask them, you know, where they went to college, and I'm certainly curious about you. But I know you've you wanted to say a few words about like where where you grew up because I think that's actually important and interesting too. And then kind of then from there, you know, a bit about your education and where you went to college. Right, right. That's that's a great question. And for me, my education essentially starts off when I was born. I'm a Nigerian, but I grew up in five countries and four continents. And the first nine years of my life was spent under two military dictatorships. So a lot of my education and my exposure to leadership was, was really, you know, what you would term as suppression of opponents, Muslim of the press, and countless human rights violations. But, um, but, but, that gave me uh, an inkling into what I wanted to do with the world. I was always curious about why people weren't able to fully exercise their voices or fully express themselves. And even though a lot of those things were outside of my control, it really just um, you know gave me this spark to want to make sure that I created an inclusive world. So I remember watching uh, the late Nelson Mandela, who's uh, arguably my biggest inspiration, transition from just getting out of jail after 27 years to being um, South Africa's first, you know, black president. And I remember watching that moment in 94 and thinking, that's who I want to be. And so uh, it, it, it served as, as a, you know, a role model for me because I was under a military dictatorship at the time and it made me see possibility, but it also led me down this path of really studying uh, people. And then my dad's job as a diplomat started to take us to different parts of the world. After we transitioned to civilian rule, we then became... You know, I, I, me and my brothers then became minorities everywhere we went because we were the only ones of our kind, essentially. You know, I was never quite black enough or Nigerian enough or man enough because I was always a mix of several cultures. And that uh, initially led to an identity crisis. Uh, I'm not going to lie, because I remember being this skinny Nigerian kid with a thick Nigerian accent, a French-speaking country, an American international school going through puberty. And you know, the identity crisis then became something that I wanted to uh, work on. And once I accepted myself, I started using the nuance within my cultures to just try and help other people feel at home where they are. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And, and, and where'd you end up going to college? I went to college in Virginia. Uh, so I went to this uh, college called Liberty University. And then I also got, I got my MBA at Fordham, Fordham University. And, so. and, and what did you major in in college? In college, I, I majored in marketing and uh, business management, and then I had a minor in French. And for my MBA, I, I got an MBA in uh, business communications as well as marketing. 
And did you did you work between college and your MBA? I did. I did. I worked for about two years or so. As uh, I, I was uh, doing sales at a uh, e-learning company. Ironically, they brought me on there to do marketing, social media marketing. But they quickly <laughs> they quickly switched that role on me and said, "Hey, you've got a, a quarter of ten thousand dollars, and uh, you got to figure out how to do that every month." So that, that that was my experience. But for those listening, I, I'm I'm not a citizen, so a lot of my path was very unique. I needed to find a company to sponsor me. Essentially, uh, if you're not a citizen in America, you can stay here, whether uh, you know through marriage, through a job, or through school. Those are the three three ways. And so I remember applying to to, to multiple places uh, in my junior and senior year, and it ended up amounting to about eighty five places, and all of them said no to me. So I was really panicking when I graduated because I, I didn't know where I was going to be. But they said no for a whole host of reasons. Some thought I was too idealistic. Some didn't like the fact that I wasn't a citizen. Some um, thought that I didn't have quite enough experience. And so the job that I took was essentially uh, one that I, I, I went back to and said, hey, I know I interned for you before. Can you just find something for me? This is something I need to stay in the country. Um, but I definitely learned a lot there. Uh, and the big thing I learned is, um, you know, settling for a career is, is a very... Uh, I, it's not something I would ever advise anyone to do. No matter how desperate you may be, always make sure that you, you're in an environment where you feel happy and you feel like there's a room, there's room for growth for you. And I can expand on that later if you want. Sure. No, that's great. And then, and then that brought you to your MBA. And then how about, how about post-MBA? It wasn't that long ago, right? What, what, are, what did you do transitioning from your MBA? Well, I got my MBA. I graduated in 2015, but the... Well, <laughs> There's so many stories that led to the end to even getting an MBA. But, you know, as I was getting my MBA, I launched my podcast. I launched my podcast in 2014 and I started school in 2013. So, uh, and, and the reason why I started the podcast is because I, I had had a near-death experience uh, uh, in 2012. So let me back it up. After, when I was graduating from college and I took that job that I, I just didn't have a choice to take um, and I felt really limited in. I, I remember driving to work in my Burgundy Toyota Camry in Virginia at the time uh, in August 2012. And I was, I, I got to the part where the road merged onto the highway and I was cruising in my lane, 60 miles an hour, like I was supposed to. And then all of a sudden my lane got caught to half and then uh, a neighboring car had lost control. And so I was swerving out of the way so I didn't get hit. And I smashed into the left guardrail, one car, boom, two cars, boom, right guardrail, boom. And then, uh, you know, I, I got back to left guardrail and this time the car hit the guardrail with such impact that they lifted up. And I was certain I was about to flip over the bridge and, and you know, essentially lose my life. And as cliche as it sounds, you certainly see your, your, your life uh, flash before your eyes or at least you become aware of your mortality. And one question that came to my mind at that moment was, have I done everything I said I wanted to do? I was asking myself that. And so adrenaline kicked in. I slammed my brakes. And all of a sudden, I somehow managed to get out of the car. But my car was completely totaled. There were two other cars hit. And I was somehow standing on the road unscathed. And that was when I knew I needed to really quit my job. <laughs> and so uh, I figured I had a second chance of life at 22. And so I quit my job, started applying to schools in between, and then moved to New York City, which led to Fordham. And then when I was at Fordham, I, I just essentially made New York City my campus and I started to follow all my curiosities 
that's where all the things about me being a diplomatic kid that grew up in all these countries, me being fascinated by inclusive leadership led to the genesis of the podcast where I started bringing on people who grew up in a similar way or were thought leaders in the field. And I just wanted to just investigate what exactly made them uh, click, how did they embrace their identities. And so I would go to school at night and do a lot of the research during the day. And that was just what I was doing. And when it came time to graduate, I'd built enough of an audience to decide that I was going to do uh, what I do now. And so that's a great story. Did you have a, a sense when you started the podcast of what you might want to translate the podcast into? I know nowadays, podcast, well, we're, we're on a podcast. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Podcasts are are quite you know quite common. Many people use podcasts as way to as ways to support or launch their business, build a brand, build an audience. Some people use podcasts for strategic reasons. Were you thinking that? Were you going sort of one step at a time without thinking that? I think people would probably be curious to hear. No, I wasn't thinking anything. All I was thinking of was I want I I had. I was stuck in a place that I wasn't growing and I'd sort of given up on even advancing in a job for two years. I had a near-death experience. Now, my, my fear was not achieving my potential. Before that, it was failure. And so I was just doing things that I knew that I was passionate about and um, hoping that I would you know, gain clarity along the way. So I did a lot of my writing. I've always been a writer. I was writing since I was um, 15. I uh, started with poetry and things like that, but I started writing on my blog more and just doing these things. And so uh, what I did was I, I just tapped into my research skills. I, I, I'm what you call a third culture kid. And so for your audiences, third culture kid or TCK is anyone who spent the formative periods of their lives outside of their parents' culture. So diplomatic kids, army brats, missionary kids, things like that, people like that. And so I just decided that I would be the thought leader in this field. That was the first thing I did. And I joined all the Facebook groups of third culture kids. I used all the hashtags to join conversations. And I said to myself, I have two years in school here. So as I'm learning, I'm going to be building an audience. And I didn't know what that audience would end up being. I just knew that I wanted to provide value for something I cared about. And that was just what I was doing. And then the other stuff just sort of uh, became clearer as I, as I grew. Got it. So, so, um, You've had an interesting, really eclectic experience that's brought you to to a place where you have started to have some influence, uh, for sure. You're doing uh, very interesting consulting. I know you've done several TED Talks. I know you've written this book, which is great. What's your impression about uh, college students today in terms of like misconceptions that they might have entering the workforce? Do you have any 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 thoughts about that? Yeah, I think. I don't want to sound controversial, but I think a lot of the education system sometimes, it doesn't prepare you for the real world the way I think it should be, the way it is today. A lot of times, it's at least in my experience, you're sort of told you do this, then you do that, then that happens. And I don't know that that allows for a lot of variance and a a lot of um, expression of, of self or identity. So what I always do when I talk to costumes, especially when I go to, to my um, um, alma maters, uh, I always allow for people this. I always make sure that people understand that your passions don't die once you go to college, regardless of your major. And so I 
always tell college students, even if you're an engineer or you're a business person, don't lose sight of your hobbies because we live in a world today where your hobbies can become your careers because of digital media, because of an audience you can create. So find a way to meld your hobby with your major and then use those, uh, use that to ultimately inform what it is that you want to be, you know, with your career. Is there anything from college or graduate school? So it sounds like you studied business in, in both places. Both places, yeah. Yeah. Was there anything that, that you felt was particularly useful now in retrospect about what you actually studied? Yeah. Uh, the, the electives I took, the, I took, I remember communication, I took communication class, which ironically is what I do. Public speaking uh, was essential for me because it allowed me to be able to articulate my ideas and present that. And, and the reason why I encourage people to also take electives is because things like public speaking or improv allow you to be able to communicate ideas no matter what you're doing, whether it's math or science or STEM, anything like that. So I, yeah, all the classes I took outside of my major uh, helped uh, because I was very intentional about that. And they also helped me meld my right and left brain uh, thinking. So yeah, for, for business, that, that was helpful for me, but I, I don't know that my MBA helps with what I do today, but I, what I do know is that it helped with the networking and uh, opening doors for me to even enter a conversation. And I'll give you an example. I, whenever I was getting guests on the podcast in the early days, you know, sometimes I would say, you know, I'm getting my MBA afforded, and people would, would associate that with credibility. And then they would be easy, they, you know, it'd be easier for them to say yes. Or I'll use that to get a meeting that I can use to interview and then write. But um, as far as uh, uh, you know, skill sets, I, I think it's, it's it's really a mixture of being intentional about your electives and turning that into something that you you're passionate about. So I don't know if I'm the best person to talk about how school translates to life, but uh, that's what I did. Yeah, it sounds like you didn't sort of just pass it. Certainly, in terms of your MBA, for sure. You didn't just sort of passively say, okay, these are the courses I need to take. These are requirements. And then when I'm done and I have all these courses, I'm going to get some great job. Instead, you sort of, it sounds like you kind of like really used the platform and the experience of getting an MBA and also of being in New York City to your advantage. Yeah. The one thing that I got really clear on was understanding how to brand yourself. Uh, um, And I, I started becoming better at telling my story. And understanding how that leverages into different audiences. And so even if I didn't feel like I was learning as much as I could in school, I understood that the brand of getting an MBA or getting this uh, helped me get into some doors which will allow me to tell better stories. So I just became more self-aware, uh, essentially. And, 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 and that's what I did. But I also was very intentional about not doing a job that I um, didn't feel like I could grow in anymore. How about mentors? Um, have tell us a bit about that. Your either your experience having had mentors or even you know being a mentor. What, what yeah. role do you feel that plays? Mentorship plays a huge role. I, I've, I've had mentorship for as long as I I've, I've been interested in leadership, um, and I was very intentional about this. Even when I was in Virginia with school, I identified someone that I admired, and I went up to him and I said basically. I, I, you know, I see that you're aware I want to be, would it be okay to have, you know, just maybe a call or a meeting every month, if that's okay. And I'm flexible and I can work with you on schedule. 
doesn't have to be in person. We could do it in person, certainly if we want to. But um, I'm happy to have a phone call or meet you at your schedule. And so I was, I was very intentional about that. And, and I also identified mentors from afar, you know, like I said, the late Nelson Mandela, Oprah Winfrey, or uh, mentors that I, that I would be interested about. And when I was younger, what I used to do is I would identify people I, I admired and I would spend hours reading their bios and their stories and their interviews and I would print them out. And I'll put them into my little folders and, and I'll have them labeled, uh, you know, according to the names. And I'll just, you know, use the highlighter to mark out things that I noticed that they developed as habits. And I would just incorporate them into my life. Um, huge tennis fan, for example, tennis, basketball. Did that with all the athletes that I liked. And I, I, I incorporated the, their routines into my life. And they played a role into how I grew. Because I think if you, if you don't, if you, if you don't, find people that you can identify with or can mentor you, whether it's physical or from afar, sometimes it can feel like you're, you're lost. And so just having that, uh, those guides for me certainly um, helped me, particularly with my media career, because I modeled a lot of people's uh, paths to do what I do today. So that's, that's interesting. The, the person who you asked in Virginia, I assume they said yes? Yes, they said yes. Um, yes and we're still uh, good friends to this day. Yeah, I imagine some listeners, you know, might feel, gosh, that that feels like a real imposition. You know, I, I'd be nervous asking someone mm-hmm. to, to be a mentor like that. Do you, I mean, do you have an, a do you have an, a give a perspective on that? I mean, I, I'll share with you just briefly. I I think you know if it's if it's someone who I think um, you know would would be a great person to mentor. I'm I'm often happy to do things like that, you know. Yeah. But but what's what, what what do you think about that? Do you think people should feel intimidated to ask? I certainly understand how it came intimidating. Um and I was nervous when I when I asked, but I think if it's it depends on your approach. You know, you could especially if it's somebody you work with, which is was my case, I said, I just said, you know, hey, could, you know, I know we're going off for lunch. Could I grab you for a few minutes? Uh, you know, have a few questions and um if you're clear about your goals and why you feel like they're good mentors, um, that's very important. So I, I told him, you know, you're, some, you're, you're at a place where I want to be. I would love to be able to pick your brain occasionally once in a while. And you have to make it flexible for them. So I didn't give them any deadline. Like, you have to meet me at 1 p.m. Saturdays. I said, I'm, I'm happy to work with you on your schedule. I know you're very busy. Even if it's via email or me having questions, would that be something you're interested in? So providing options will, should, can help limit the nerves, but I'll just make it easy for them to be able to pick one of a few things because you don't want to get, put them in a position where they feel like you know, they have to do meet you at your own um, schedule and uh, ignore family that they have with things like that. So, so let's conclude here by talking a bit about your book. You've got a book coming out. I imagine by the time this, this episode launches, it'll be very close to coming out, maybe already just came out. Um, tell us about the book and also about the experience of writing a book. I, I take it this is your first book. This is, yeah, this is my first published book. Uh, so I'll start off with the experience of writing a book. This, the book came about from a signature speech that I do. I give a particular speech often, uh, and it's called How to Effectively Connect Across Cultures. And I, I remember even just coming up with that speech and I thinking, okay, wow, this is a framework that I can use in my coaching and in my workshops. And the idea to write a book uh, came to me, I want to say two years ago. I've always wanted to write a book, but this particular idea came to me two years ago. And I started just outlining 
the book. Um, you know, the speech already gave me a framework. And so I, I just, I would outline it in my Google Docs and I'll be like, okay, for just imagining a book that I'm going to write, these are the things that I will put under this section and this section and this section. And then for me, uh, writing was easier than finding a publisher. <laughs> um, the business of getting a book published was, was kind of what took the most time. It took me a year. Uh, um, I believe I actually talked to you about uh, the process because yeah. uh, I was curious about it. It took me a year to find a publisher. And what I did initially was I, I reached out to, uh, I knew there was someone in my network that was, they used to work at Bolton Mifflin, uh, no, McGraw Hill rather. And I was like, Hey, do you know any person that I could talk to maybe about my idea? And she introduced me to an editor. Um, the editor was initially interested and she was saying, yeah, you have a good story. Da, 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 da. And so I was like, excited. I was like, yes, my first try. Wow. And, and um, uh, I eventually sent a pitch and they said, yeah, you know, I feel like this is something we could work with. And then they just stopped responding. And after like the fourth follow-up, I, I got the hint. And then I, I started looking for more editors. And I think I went through four or five uh, different uh, people before one took a chance at me in, in December. And once I had that, um, I just started writing. They, they gave me, I got the deal in December last year. And then they asked me if I could turn the manuscript in by March. Uh, by No, by, um, yeah, by March 1st. And I said, sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I just started writing. And I ended up writing the book in, in, in a month and a half or so, which is about 250 pages or so. But I, I, you know, when I tell people the story, people always tell me, that's crazy. I take six months. I don't know. I guess I, was, I already knew what I wanted to write. So I wrote it. But the writing wasn't as uh, hard as, as the, the business of it. So because I just knew I wanted to be traditionally published. But the book is about connecting effectively across cultures and I, I, in divisive times. And I really wrote it because I'm looking at the world today and it seems like we have such extremes and there's no nuance and people aren't uh, equipped, particularly institutions aren't equipped to understand how to deal with you know, people from different backgrounds. And also, I, I didn't feel like people understood how to communicate ideas across different values. And so, you know, I call it use your difference to make a difference, which is my mission statement, because I want to get, I want us to get to a place where differences aren't used as barriers. You know, they're used as gateways, you know, the bridges instead. And so I, I, I was really looking at the landscape and to me it's, it's in response to a lot of what's been going on in the world, whether it's with the populism, it's with the isms and the, the, the ignorance and the fear. Um, and I want us to get to a place of understanding and uh, more nuance because that's the only way we can grow and that's the only way we can be more effective. So that's the genesis of how the book came. Great. So, and, and I've checked out the book and I think you have a great voice and a great message and I'd encourage people to, to, to take a look for sure. And, and, and even more generally, how can people uh, reach you or find you? I know you're not that hard to find on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> How can people find out about you if they've listened to this and they want to learn more? So uh, thank you for having me. And the, the best way to reach, uh, reach out to me is just at Tyroxin, T-A-Y-O-R-O-C-K-S-O-N. I'm at Tyroxin on Twitter, on Instagram, or anywhere. I think I'm the only one that uses that name. <laughs> but but Tyroxin.com is my digital home. Uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, but if you search Tyroxin, you will definitely get a hold of me. Uh, sure. All right. Sounds great. Thanks so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom. If you're interested in learning more about the work that I do and helping people step outside their comfort zones and transition successfully into the professional world, please visit my website, www.andymolinsky.com. That's A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And also feel free to email me directly at andy at andymolinsky.com with any feedback or ideas for guests for future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Brandeis University's International Business School. By teaching rigorous business, finance, and economics, connecting students to best practices and immersing them in international experiences, Brandeis International Business School prepares exceptional individuals from around the globe to become principled professionals in companies and public institutions worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.